Well, good morning. Welcome to uh, Canterbury Gardens, if you're visiting with us today. I have the privilege this morning of, I guess, uh, giving the, the Good Friday message. And uh, it is a privilege. It's one of those, I guess, solemn times of the year when we consider the death of our precious Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, it doesn't stop there because on Sunday we celebrate his resurrection. Because his death is nothing without his resurrection. So this morning I want to spend some time in God's word just marvelling and really answering the question is why did Jesus have to die? What was the purpose in his death? What was the eternal plan of God in that plan that he had? And that's the thing we'll answer today. But before we do, let's uh, read some scripture together. We're going to read uh, two, pers- two portions of scripture this morning. We're going to go back into the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, please help yourself to one on the side here. Uh, and we're going to read from Isaiah initially. Isaiah chapter 52, starting at verse 13. And then we'll read from uh, John chapter 12. So Isaiah 52 verse 13 says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which he has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteem him stricken smitten by God and afflicted but he was wounded for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like street sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that that before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered that he was cut off at the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet 
It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for all the transgressors. If you turn with me over to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 27. This is Jesus speaking. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we had heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness shall not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. When he said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. May the Lord add his blessing to these readings. This first reading was from Isaiah. He was a prophet 700 years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah wrote four songs, four songs about what the servant of the Lord would be like. This is the final song. And as we have read Isaiah 53, we, we see the amazing picture language of what we understand as the crucified Lord of the universe. 
But what is intriguing to me as I read Isaiah 53 is the very first verse says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In Isaiah's time, he was prophesying to a nation. He was prophesying to two parts of one nation, to Israel and to Judah. And the same question was asked to that nation as is asked to us today. Do you believe in Jesus the Messiah? Who has believed what he has heard from us? Isaiah is making this plea. Have you believed what you have heard about the coming Messiah and his purpose? I read that portion in John because it is fulfillment of this particular scripture. John records that Jesus is ministering among the leaders of Israel. And they doubt who he is. They don't even know who the Son of Man and the Son of God should be. They don't even know the Messiah. And yet he is standing in front of them. They said, the light of the world is before you. Believe in me so you will have eternal life. That's John's major premise through his gospel. And then John does something very interesting. He quotes Isaiah 53 about the unbelieving nation. He says, you stand here, you've seen me, you've seen the miracles I've done, you've seen the signs that God has invested me with to show who I am and let you do not believe. And that's the same question for you and I today. We have God's written word. God's word that is without error. It's inerrant. And this word tells us who Jesus is, why he came, and what significance that is to you and I. I just want to explore that a little bit this morning with you as we go through these scriptures. Isaiah 53, if we go back to 700 years before Christ, explains the purpose. If you read in Isaiah 53, 6, the reason a suffering servant had to come to suffer, to take on the sin of the world, was because we all like sheep have gone astray. I don't know, anyone a farmer here? Anyone been, had the joy of trying to shepherd sheep? Not in a pastoral sense, in a physical farming sense. Ah, Andy has. Andy, would you testify to me that sheep are dumb? Yes. Okay. I would, I would, I would um, agree with your testimony. If you try and lead a sheep, or in, in our Australian, New Zealand context, we tend to try and drive sheep, right? They tend to go left, right, never go down the centre. The grass is always greener on the other side. They go astray easily. And not only do they go astray easily, they'll follow one that is going astray, thinking that is the path that they should be taking. Sheep by nature are stupid. So when we read Isaiah 53, 6, and the prophet tells us that we are like sheep, it's a fairly big condemnation. Condemnation. 
But it's true because what has happened is sin has separated us from a holy God. And Romans 1 talks about the fact that we actually have turned to worship the creature rather than the creator. We have placed in our own hearts our own self-importance and said to God, we don't care. We are okay. We're on our own track. And the Bible clearly states that own track leads to destruction. Because by nature we are sinful, we get led astray. We follow the the whims of the world. We follow the world's philosophies as opposed to following God's design. And Isaiah talks about this. He talks about our state before a holy God. And many other portions of scripture talk about this. It talks of Romans particularly talks about this. And it says in your own effort, in your own moral righteousness, this will not be good enough for you to get to God. Keeping the law or keeping works and being morally upright, that will not get you to God. Because all your righteous acts are like filthy rags. They account nothing in God's economy. But there is good news. And that's why the death of Christ is so significant. Because the death of Christ provides an opportunity for you and me to be restored to God. Isaiah 53 talks about that. That's the purpose. The purpose is because we have gone astray, God is providing a way of salvation. And in this purpose, he he looks at Several other things. He, he looks at what the suffering servant will have to endure on our behalf. We've read some of this language and it's, at best it's disturbing. When you read things like his appearance will be marred more than any man's. The brutality of the crucifixion has been well attested to. Read the gospel accounts. I'm not going to do that today for you, but Christ suffered a horrible death. And it was foretold. It was foretold that he would be despised by his own people and rejected by men generally. Is told that he would bore our griefs and carry our sorrows. But the, it was told that he would be oppressed and afflicted, and yet he would be silent before his accusers. You read the gospel accounts, you, you see Pilate questioning him and saying, Well, tell me, who really are you? Are you the Christ? And Christ turns it well, is as you have said. When he humbly went to the cross, 
He did not open his mouth to try and justify himself. He did not call down the legions of heaven to change the situation. He could have. He humbly went to the cross to deal with the issue of sin. That's the power of the Easter message, that we have a saviour. A saviour. Who went through the agony, the grief, the pain, the physical torture and the spiritual separation for you and I. Why? So he could bring peace. Verse 5 of Isaiah 53 tells us that. He was wounded for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Don't lose the impact of those two words. When we think about wounded, you know, we all get wounds, okay? We get paper cuts. We're not talking about a paper cut here. You know, that, that's probably the worst wound. We might occasionally drop a chainsaw on our leg or whatever, but, you know, the wounds we get aren't that great. So perhaps this, this word wound here is, could be a stronger term because this is a wound for sin. He was wounded because he took on the sin of the world. It's deeper than just a paper cut or a chainsaw cut. It's deeper than that. This is a deep spiritual wound that's going on. And he was crushed. Think about that word. What does it mean to be crushed? For our sins. Why? So he could bring peace. Why? So we could be healed by these, this action. And that's marvellous news. If you look further down in verse 10, you, you find out who does the crushing in this instance. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief. It was God's plan of redemption that place Christ on the cross. We've learned that in Acts. Acts chapter 2 talks about that. Why? So that many may be accounted righteous. Verse 11. Verse 12. He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for them. That's the good news of Easter. The death of Christ is there to pay for our sin. And that's why the question is important. What will you do with Jesus? Will you be like the kings of Isaiah's day who did not understand, did not hear, did not take to heart what this message of prophecy was about? Will you be like the people of, when Jesus was walking the earth, he saw the miracles, saw the signs, saw the very light before them, and yet 
did not choose to follow. They did not choose to follow. In the portion in John, there were several reasons they didn't follow. One was the fear of man. The other was a straight disbelief. And these things all play today, don't they? Why don't we follow Christ? Is it belief or is it fear of men? I'm not quite sure what my workmates will think. I'm not quite sure what my family will think. I'm not quite sure what my friends will think if I profess to following Christ. The next few minutes, I just want to concentrate on the benefits of Christ's death. And the benefits of Christ's death are explained in four ways, and these are just marvelous. And this is what I want to leave with you today. Yes, we remember his death today on Good Friday. But let's remember why. And so we're going to look at four words, which are large words in the New Testament to describe the purpose of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And I would hope that as we go through these four words, that it will cause you to worship him. That it will cause you in your heart to fall and worship him for what he has done on your behalf. That will only be a reality if you know him personally. If you don't know him personally, then it's an opportunity to think about, okay, this could relate to my life, could relate to my eternity, could relate to my soul. The first one, and I think we will read from Romans chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 3. Paul in this book has been going through an argument. He starts with the major statement of Romans in chapter 1, saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For the gospel is the righteousness of God. It is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And he just goes through an argument where your moral uprightness will not save you, the law will not save you, or law-keeping. No one is righteous, no, not one. And he comes to his first summary statement in chapter 3, verse 21. I just want to read these few verses to you. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law through the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that we might be, he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
A lot of big words in those few verses, but they're rich in meaning. Deeply rich in meaning. You have the first word that I want to concentrate on this morning is a word called propitiation. How often do we use that in our common everyday language? Who's used it recently this week? Yeah, me too. I haven't even used that word for probably 20 years. <laughs> okay. So why does the scripture talk about propitiation? What does that mean? Because it says that through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, God poured out, uh, put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So Jesus' blood is a propitiation, whatever that might mean. And I think the best understanding of what propitiation is, is that God's wrath, because we're in a sinful world, God is fully righteous. He has to, at some point in time, meter out justice upon the sin of the world. He's fully holy, He's fully love, he's fully merciful, he's fully just. So in his totality, God must meter out his wrath. And what the word propitiate means is that God's wrath is satisfied. And this is wonderful. That God's wrath against us, sinners, is satisfied. And how is it satisfied? Through the sacrifice of Jesus through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. See, propitiation placates God's wrath. It involves an appeasement of the offended party, so God is no longer offended, and it deals with God's wrath through Jesus' sacrifice. God's just demands have been met in the person and work of Jesus through his sacrifice. And that's good news. If you accept Jesus, you no longer have God's wrath hanging over you. You no longer have God's future judgment. It's been dealt with because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. The second word we come across which tries to explain what we call the atonement. This is all we're explaining. Isaiah 53 talked about the fact that we needed to have our sin atoned for. The New Testament uses four words to try and explain that. The first one is propitiation. The second one is reconciliation. If you go over to Romans 5 and read the first 11 verses of Romans 5, you will see what divine reconciliation looks like. And uh, it is just beautiful when you look at this. For while we were still weak and at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. 
That's marvelous news because the reconciliation metaphor changes our relationship. We move from hostility towards God to harmony and peace between the two parties. Romans 5, 1 that starts says, we have peace with God. That's a result of the reconciliation. We have access to God, Romans 5, 2. We have access into God's treasure trove of grace. So it's an ongoing thing. Our reconciliation makes us part of God's family. We become adopted sons and daughters. Galatians 4, 5, and 7 talks about that. And you say, well, why is reconciliation necessary? Because we were enemies. And it's only through the sacrifice of Jesus that we can be reconciled to God. So that's another wonderful word that the New Testament uses. We are propitiated. God's wrath is satisfied. We're reconciled. We are no longer in hostility. We're in harmony. The third one that we'll just quickly look at is um, redemption. Redemption is a wonderful, wonderful word. And it's drawn from the slave market. We all heard stories of the slave market and how it operates and and how um, a slave could be redeemed from slavery. And this is the, the, the nature of this word redemption and the metaphor. It means to be set free. It means to be bought back from the slave market. It means to buy back. So you've got all these terms working together and it comes to redemption. And this is what Jesus has done on our behalf. He has redeemed us. Ephesians talks about it. Beautiful verse in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. Redemption is bought by Jesus, by his sacrifice, by the act on Good Friday. By his death, our sin is atoned for. And the final one I want to just concentrate on is justification. That's the final metaphor. So we have propitiation. God's wrath is satisfied. We have redemption. We've been bought back. A price has been paid. The very price is Jesus' blood. We have reconciliation. We've moved from hostility to harmony. We have peace with God. We have access to God's wonderful treasure trove of grace. We're part of God's family. We're adopted. Does that not excite you? We're no longer dead in our sins. We're alive in Christ. That's the good news of of Easter. And finally, we have justification. We read that in the Romans passage earlier. Because of the work of Christ, God declares us justified. We stand in righteousness before him. Why? Not based on any merit of our own, but based on Christ's own righteousness. Here's another old English word. What does imputed mean? Does anyone know what imputed means? Come on, you accountants. What's imputed mean? Imputed righteousness is something we used to talk about a lot. An imputation credit. Okay, who has shares? 
Yeah, you have shares, right? So every year they send you a funny little statement that says, here's an imputation credit. What does that mean? They give you money. So that money, that imputation credit goes from their account to your account. It's sitting in your account. That's the same thing with Christ's righteousness. It's imputed to us when we put our faith and trust in him. All his righteousness is moved from his account to yours. And you know the great thing? All your unworthiness is moved from your account to his. God sees you through Christ. Hallelujah, what a saviour. That's what justification is about. His righteousness is imputed to us. His righteousness is imparted to us. And that's the wonder of the atonement. So I hope this Easter you consider the vital questions. Who is Jesus to you? Jesus asked that question of his disciples early in his ministry. Who do you say that I am? Peter responded, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Is that your testimony today? Because if it's not, Scripture tells us you're lost. You're being led astray and you're on a slippery slope. But by placing your faith and trust in Christ and his saving work, you can have eternal life. You will have eternal life. And that is good news. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for just the power of your word. We thank you for the power of salvation. We thank you for the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We marvel as we consider all that has been done on our behalf when we put our faith and trust in you. We thank you that we are reconciled. We thank you that your wrath is satisfied. We praise you that we are redeemed. We've been brought back out of the slave market of sin. We thank you that we've moved from hostility towards you to harmony. We thank you that your spirit indwells us and empowers us to to live a life worthy of your name. We thank you that we are justified, that your righteousness has been accounted to us, imputed, and you see us through the precious blood of your Son. We rejoice in that, and we truly can say, hallelujah, what a Savior. We pray this in the powerful name of Christ our Savior. Amen.